0: Welcome to The Jesse Garcia Show, your half hour home for politics, culture, and art, where we bring you a new story about your world in every episode. Today's guest is Ray de los Santos, a longtime leader in the Latinx community who has dedicated his life to education and uplifting the next generation will revisit his life back in the early 1980s at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, talk about how the virus ravaged the community, created stigma and panic, and how leaders in the health community erased queer brown folks from positions of power as they search for resources for Latinx communities. Thank you for following The Jesse Garcia Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessigarcialshows.com. It's been 40 years since the first wave of known cases of AIDS hit the United States. Four decades ago, the virus began spreading quickly throughout the gay community. It took months to identify and figure out how it spread and what could be done to stop infection due to lack of federal government will thousands of people unknowingly became infected and passed the virus on to others. During the height of this tragic epidemic, Ray de los Santos, a young Latino man in South Texas, was dealing with his sexuality, the stress of leaving home and attending medical school. He was coming to grips with a new reality where the world had changed overnight due to a public health crisis. Adding to the persistent homophobia at the time, was a new layer of stigma and fear caused by HIV-AIDS that would scar the lives of many queer people like him growing up in the 80s. Ray opens up about what he went through, how he was recruited to look for resources to fight this disease in a small Texas city, and how he helped his friend and former lover leave this world on his own terms. I want to welcome to the show a very good friend and mentor, superstar in my world, Renato de los Santos, affectionately known as Ray, to the podcast. Ray, thank you for coming on the on the show.
1: Thanks, Jesse. It's a long time. I've been waiting to come.
0: Yes. Uh, Ray and I have known each other for more than, I would say, like 15 years. It's almost 15 years when I started in a, finally getting involved with LULAC. Ray was a person who... Navigated that for me when we wanted to start talking about LGBT issues in Lulac, he was the one that showed me the way how to form a council, how to who was who. You helped me navigate all of that, and I deeply appreciate it. And one thing I I really love about and appreciate about Ray is because there's so many layers to you. It's just not Lulac or you're a leader, but you're also a leader in education, higher ed. And you're also a mentor to children uh, in high school. And then you're also have this whole health background that we're gonna discuss fully in this uh, show about uh, HIV and AIDS when it first broke out in the 1980s. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Ray. I
1: was born in Brownsville. I know uh, you are also uh, from the same place. My hometown, yes. On the border by the sea. On the border by the sea, I saw that all over. Um, so, I grew up uh, for the first six years of my life there, and then my family moved to Corpus, Corpus Christi on the south side. We were the first Mexican town, uh, family moving into our neighborhood, and boy, did we get the welcome committee coming out for us! <laughs> oh my God! Threw rotten eggs at our house. They put salt in the grass. They chopped my mom's rose bushes down. All sorts of all sorts of really ugly. Thing. So, I mean, it, it, I, I understood later why Corpus was as segregated as it was later on in life. Uh, it was a, a city with about 58% Latino population at the time. And, uh, but my high school was, uh, we were maybe 8% Latinos and almost no Blacks uh, at my high school. But that was back in the 70s. After that, uh, I, I went to uh, St. Mary's University in San Antonio.
0: Um, you went into education,
1: correct? Well, I actually had a degree in biology. And I went to medical school for two years. I got accepted to six different medical schools. I chose Baylor. Uh, My sister at the time told me that uh, I I should go to one of the UT schools or someplace else. She said, you're not going to like Baylor. And I said, I insisted I was going to go, and I did. Um, And it changed my life in ways I didn't anticipate. Because once again, that experience reminded me of what I had growing up in Corpus in the South Side. Uh, By that, I mean that uh, there were only 26 Latinos out of 1,200 students. And I got really involved in recruiting students and and, uh, basically uh, uh, increasing the population of Latinos at the campus and African-American students as well. We did really well by my sophomore year, and it threatened a lot of people. They really responded negatively, and and uh, the students came to me that we had recruited and said, "Hey, you lied to us. You told us Baylor would be an awesome place, and in fact, we had all these problems." And so, uh, I went. I learned really quickly what it was like to be called a troublemaker, because uh, I was listening to the students and I would advocate for them, and. The, the administration that previously had treated me like, hey, he's the go-to guy. He'll take care of any problems that we had. I could tell you more stories about that, but um, all of a sudden I became the troublemaker and I learned what that felt like. It's kind of like the first time in my life I was really kind of with that label. Um, and so I took a year's leave of absence and uh, they I talked to the financial aid director. She gave me the financial aid award for my third year to mostly student loans anyway. And so I traveled around the world and it's the best thing I could have done because I, I tell people I left as an angry Chicano, pissed off at the system, pissed off at what the lies that I heard from people. And I came back, resolved that while we're not the best, necessarily the necessarily the, the paradise that we say we are here in this country, We're not that exceptional nation. We have a lot of problems here too, but that we can work together to help us get closer to that ideal. So I decided to devote, instead of going to medical school, I would work to help the country do that, just that with getting people out to vote, getting people excited about their rights, getting people empowered, uh, getting people into school. For me, education is the way for us to uh, really su- succeed as a,
0: as a community, as a society. So you became an activist in a, like a very important time in our nation's history because AIDS, which turns yeah. 40 this year, it broke out in 1981. Where were you in the mix? How old were you?
1: I was 22, 23 years old at the time, Cassie. I was, uh at the Baylor College of Medicine. I started there in June of 1980, and I was there 80, 81, 82. So right at those early days when we were first hearing, there's some type of gay-related immune disease or grids, they call it. Uh, There's something that's killing gay men, something that's giving us uh, some type of cancer uh and at the time uh going dancing at the club was very popular and dancing with poppers was very popular and all of a sudden people started hearing oh it's the poppers that's causing it and boom it, you know people just stopped doing that it, I mean, it's not the best thing probably for you to do anyway but uh you know there's all oh, sorts really? of there's all sorts of shit.
0: yeah a lot of rumors a lot of uh conspiracies that were going around, but the worst part of it was the stigma that was being attached to the community at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah what, I'm the- what did you see around you? Um, what was happening to the LGBTQ community?
1: Well, Jesse, I'm gonna answer that by, by telling you something I haven't, I don't know that I've shared with very many people before, but when I was in high school, I had a best friend who became my lover. His name was Larry. And Larry had gone off to the military when I went to the university, actually went to the university but for a year and then he went to the military to make a man of himself, to try to deny the gayness. He was in a family that was not very accepting and he wasn't accepting of himself. So um, he, was, uh, he got AIDS while in the military services. And this is in in 1982, 83, in that year, he returned home to Corpus Christi because he was sick and he was discharged. And I remember having, at that time, I was back myself having left medical school. And I remember having to make a decision that I would be in his life and that I didn't care that the, you know, there were some hard times we broke up and there was some things like that that happened. But to be able to just be in his apartment and hold him while he was shaking and crying, uh, not knowing what was gonna happen.
0: Because we didn't know back then if this was contagious, like by the touch of the skin, uh, or or exposure to, you know. Exactly.
1: It was just like, it reminded me of COVID when we started off last year and everybody was spraying all the surfaces and, and all that type of stuff not not knowing what it was that caused it or how you got COVID. Well, it was exactly the same thing or worse with AIDS and HIV because it was focused on our community in the U.S. It was a, uh, something that... Uh, that no one knew where it came from, so you 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 feared everything. And when you had a partner or friend who was sick, many people unfortunately made the decision to, to get out of their lives completely and not not be involved with them, because they were afraid that they would get sick. And I remember just making the decision that you know I didn't care. He was my friend, someone that I loved, and I was going to stay in his life.
0: Because you had a medical background, did you know more about the disease more than others? There were, uh, yeah,
1: I probably knew a little bit more in the sense I was learning from some of the people that it was probably not contagious, but it was still not. At that time, we couldn't say exactly if it was airborne or not. We didn't know exactly. So, but we it was the the consensus was was going in that direction so that I knew I was probably going to be safe,
0: but there was no guarantee. A lot of people abandoned people that were fighting HIV, AIDS, full-blown AIDS. At that time, people just did not know how to help those people because they were getting so thin and emaciated. A lot of people thought, well, they need food. So that was the number one thing that people would, from what I remember, the stories that were told to me, a lot of food was delivered to these people that were fighting this. And a lot of the people that did not give up on gay men were actually lesbians who knew them, who were also ostracized for being different in society and had become friends of gay men. So a lot of lesbians were there to help and people like you that did not give up on their partners, their friends, so. Thank you, Ray, for being there when others wouldn't.
1: It it was a really horrible time because even in Corpus Christi, you know, sometimes you're thinking in a smaller city like that, you're going to be a little bit safer or immune. Uh, We started seeing people get sick and we started seeing people die. And it reached a point uh, between then and about the mid 80s that At one point we were seeing someone die every month. Every month you were going to different funerals or hearing about someone who died. And it was uh, a devastating thing, especially in the clubs, uh, in in the club scene. Uh, It it was not, uh, uh, at one point Corpus
0: had eight gay bars, a small city like Corpus. Eight gay bars. Eight gay bars. I don't think we've ever reached that number since <laughs>
1: it was no, it was at one point I, I I counted the bars in town, and there was so much activity in life and and, and action and, and things going on, and then it all went downhill from there to like pretty pretty quickly. It went down to about two or three.
0: So while many people were devastated by this disease and could have easily just walked away from the community, try to save themselves from any type of stigma. You got involved. You got involved with this public health crisis and you try to look for resources and you try to look for resources, in, not just in the big cities, but in your town, your hometown right. of Chris Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, first off, there were so many people that were, hiding and scared Uh, people that once you get sick or people think you're sick, you'll lose your job. They need support. Uh, We would hear about organizations in the bigger cities like Houston and Dallas, Austin. Um, And I have to say that I kind of, uh, you know, I, I love the narrative you're painting of me, but I was kind of dragged into it. Uh, but I love doing it, of course. But I was kind of dragged into it because you ha- somebody had to do something. Uh, I, w- I do want to credit that there was a uh, uh, the, a bar manager of a place called The Hidden Door in Corpus Christi, a guy named Andy White. And we had lost so many people. And, and, and that particular bar was run by a foundation that owned the club. And so he got a group of about six of us together, six, uh, six or seven of us together, and basically said, "We have to do something." And well, we, we we didn't know what we didn't know how to respond to that. So then we said, "Well, let's go, let's go see what the, the what's going on in Austin. They seem to have it together." So he actually gave us some money and one of the members had a big station wagon, an old station wagon, we all piled in there. He paid for hotel rooms and gas uh, through the bar. And we drove to Austin and spent three days meeting with people, talking to people, seeing what they were doing there. Uh, The organization eventually changed its name to Austin Aid Services, I think it is, or Aid Services Austin, Uh, but uh, at that time, it was called the Aids Foundation of Austin, Austin Aids Foundation. And we modeled and we thought we can do this. We can bring this back to, to, to Corpus. Uh, and we already knew that the need was much bigger than just Corpus. We in, in that area is called the Coastal Bend of Texas. And so... Uh, We decided that we were going to try to bring something that would bring testing services that would bring because there there was was no vaccine, there was nothing like that. We didn't really have drugs of any kind, really, we were looking for, but we we needed to know who and and, and promoting uh, the wearing of condoms and all of that education stuff that needed to happen in a community that had almost nothing going on that was educating people and preparing people to help save their lives. And then when people lose their jobs and they lose their family, we needed people who would raise money to provide food and shelter for these people. This is so much more, so much needs that were happening. And then worst of all, Jesse, our own government abandoned us. You know, there's a lot of people with different mindsets, different ideas about President Reagan, but I despise the man because for six years of his eight-year administration, he denied any federal involvement in support for our community simply because it was us, simply because it was a people that was stigmatized because of who we loved.
0: That was... You had a pretty tall order of not only providing medical outreach, um, but also social safety net for folks to be taken care of when they were going to be abandoned.
1: That was the most important part. That social safety net is where we really thought we could make the biggest difference. Because we had young men who were throwing themselves off the Harbor Bridge in Corpus Christi. Wow. It was It was constant. And, and, and why the state didn't do a better job of doing some type of catchment or something but there were suicides that were happening up there all the time of peoples who even feared that they had hiv that they were hiv positive it was a tragic time we went, we went to too many funerals the depression the depression alone the clinical depression that you saw of the community as they saw their brothers and sisters, Killing themselves or dying from this disease, dying of the cancer, or being homeless and not knowing how to do help them because you can't help everybody. It was it was a hard, harsh time, and you oh, there were some churches, some groups that would help, but many of them would still were engaged and involved in the, stigmatizing our community even worse.
0: How were you able to get those uh, set up a foundation in Corpus Christi?
1: We came back with a determination that we were going to be doing something. And so we actually um, ended up meeting with some people from the Spahn uh, hospital. It was a Catholic hospital. Uh, It's an order of Catholic nuns that run that hospital. And to their credit, they had not. Uh, shunned the community and provided services. They continued to provide services, needed services for people who needed them. Uh, I applaud them for for that. Aren't Uh, the nuns,
0: like, aren't they superheroes, the nuns? The Catholic nuns always come through when there's a need. I always say this on my podcast because I went to Catholic universities. I went to Our Lady of the Lake University first, then St. Mary's, but I have to share a quick story. Well, I was at Our Lady of Lake University. The nuns—it's a mainly—it was an all-girl school, all-woman school, but eventually they um, allowed men to register there in the late seventies. But they had an orphanage, and it was a special orphanage in San Antonio for South Texas, really, for HIV-positive children. Right that were being born all over South Texas, they would end up in San Antonio and the nuns were taking care of them. The nuns, like you said, never shunned the HIV positive community, the Catholic nuns in South Texas.
1: We shun- owe them a big debt of gratitude.
0: Yeah, they will always run to the problem. But I just wanted to point that out, how these special women in South Texas never gave up on our community. But go ahead, finish your, your story. So
1: they allowed us space. They allowed us opportunities to meet. We started meeting with practitioners, people who were treating the people with HIV and, and AIDS. Um, and they uh, allowed us to start the, the creation and the work of the creating the nonprofit that became the Coastal Band-Aids Foundation. You asked earlier about what happened later on with uh, being told, "Oh, you're you're not going to stand to the side." And when we got to that point, when we were really launching the foundation, reaching out for people for funding and for partnership with other nonprofits and for all sorts of other things, uh, at one point we, as we started growing, we were told, "Okay, all of you, you know, that were in the." initial foundation stages and all that, uh, Latinos or from the gay community, um, we need to present a more presentable front to get the people with money and uh, the, the other peoples to uh, to to donate and to support and have confidence that the organization will do the right thing, the ethical thing. Um, and so we were asked to not be involved in the uh, advancement work, which is the the resource development work, the that type of stuff, and then slowly, as 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 things as people started getting hired, we were not the ones that were offered positions or or involvement, and slowly our our positions on the
0: board were uh, we were pushed aside. Uh, you were erased. So, you were erased.
1: Yes, and, and in, it, in in the memory of the more, organization. To know. make
0: it more inviting for white people with money to give to your organization, they decided to change the out the the outreach, the look of who this organization was. How did that make you feel? Pissed off angry that we that we were shut and put aside but then
1: also somewhat uh kind of like saying well okay they're moving forward they're providing these services uh i'll do the best i can on my own over here and uh uh i'll i'll i'll, I'll encourage them to go off and do the thing because
0: uh to grow the services that needs to happen uh,
1: you know, the part of me was
0: said, I'll go ahead and just step back for the greater good. Exactly.
1: That, that was my mindset at the time.
0: Wow. Great. How do you feel uh, about the fact that it's 40 years? And uh, do you feel that this type of erasure still happens in professional fields that you've been working with? This it
1: happens consistently over time, and let me tell you a more, a more recent example. Uh, about ten years ago, we were fighting a battle to get a street renamed for Cesar Chavez. I remember, right, I remember. Right here in downtown Dallas, we had a meeting with the mayor of Dallas at the time. Uh, I believe it was Tom Leppard, but um, the, they, we had a meeting, and the the conversation came around to what their plans were because they were wanting to change a street from Industrial Boulevard to Riverfront. And for various reasons, they had an election about what they should name it. They had a name that they wanted. And a big part of the community, 52% of the electorate said Cesar Chavez. They wanted the name Cesar
0: Chavez on that street. They wanted Cesar Chavez.
1: We had a meeting with the mayor and he says, I cannot let you do this because we have big plans for that street. We want over a billion dollars of investment and the investors will not invest in a street named after Teza Chavez. That's erasing an icon in our community. That's erasing 52% of the electorate that voted in that election.
0: They threw out those results? Completely, completely. Completely. We didn't get the right name. Even though that's what the community wanted, they didn't feel. Let's just. It's just. It doesn't matter. We're not gonna count those results. And boy, did that piss off a lot of people. Yeah, it sure did. We it,
1: that ended up in a three-year battle, and we ended up with a, with a street. We're satisfied with it, but uh, it was not the street that we wanted, or even the second street. It was a third choice. The third choice. But it was a. I
0: think overall, it was a good choice so far. We're on the verge now of getting a vaccine and a cure. I mean, they're testing out these things as we speak, Ray. How does that make you feel that after 40 years, we're finally at this point? Thank God, (laughs) (laughs) you know, what took it so long? What took
1: it so long, exactly. I, I, I I look at the fact that with COVID in less than a year, we have a vaccine in less than a year. And with HIV, it's 40 years. How, I I know, you know the story that for the first six years of that period, our federal government under Reagan refused to even explore the concept that the federal government had a role in combating HIV and AIDS. Hence, millions of people died
0: because of that inaction. All over the world, yes. And it wasn't until uh, this disease spread to straight communities where this became something of a national emergency. I didn't say it. You did. But that's exactly my thought. It didn't become a people's disease until families, white families, started getting affected.
1: Well, because second-class types of people, gay, lesbian, well, LGBT people,
0: brown, and, and, and people,
1: low-income people, were brown people were the ones getting sick, not the mainstream. And, and you know that, that that's a sad commentary on on our society, but it's the truth, and we have to acknowledge that. Can you tell that I'm angry? What you touched on these topics, man, they piss me
0: off. It triggers something because you lived through this. I was lucky enough that I was able to be born into a generation where AZT was finally becoming available, and people were being able to treat it. But it you had to have connections and money, and I remember losing people along the way, and it was because it was hard to get that access, and then having the right type of insurance, knowing the right people, and the stigma of showing up to go get tested and and having to tell folks your situation. The stigma continues and it still continues to today. We're not making, yeah, you can treat the disease, but there's also things that come with it. Like the people not treating you the same way that you should be treated like others equally. But I I just want to thank you so much for always always being a beacon of light and hope to so many people. Um I've known you for 15 years and you've always been that positive person that gives the right says the right things at the right time and I want to thank you and I'm I'm sorry if I triggered stuff in you during this um podcast interview but I just remember you sharing this story and I felt like this is something that needs to go and be spread out to more listeners, just to see how things were back then and how not only were we going through a public health crisis, but racism still works <laughs> and, and, and classism, how it all determines who gets what in assistance and and, and, and access to funds, who gets the help and in what ways. If your listeners wanted to honor your service, Ray, with a donation, what HIV/AIDS charity would you like them to donate in your name? Wow, uh,
1: there's a lot of them. Um, probably in in uh, in Dallas area, there's a Southern Dallas AIDS Walk. Uh, that's uh, close to to my heart because they're they uh, close to. The, they do a lot of groundwork that that and work with communities that are usually neglected otherwise uh, in the Brown and black community in the Brown and black community. Exactly. Here in Dallas. Um, I mean, there's others, uh, uh, aid services at Dallas, uh, you know, is doing great work. I'm, I'm not going to uh, say they all, I mean, they all deserve some, some donations, uh, but, uh, I would say, you know, AIDS walk, uh, South Dallas is coming up and, uh, in the spring. And, uh, Uh, we try to support them as much as possible.
0: Of course, with COVID, it's been difficult, but so. It's been difficult for people to raise money during COVID because there's so many precautions that people are taking to make sure to limit the spread of COVID that they've had to cancel all these five ks that we usually get around October or in the spring when uh, it's bearable to be outside. Right. That's one of their money makers. And hopefully this year, we can get back to having those events this coming months, but um, think about it when you um, commemorate World AIDS Day on December 1st, about giving a little bit of donation money to these organizations in your community that help um, provide these social services, these this outreach uh, outreach to people who need assistance. What Ray was doing back 40 years ago, <laughs> we the the need is still there
1: yeah there's so much more to the story i can share with you because because there was so much need and anytime you you turned around there was someone there uh i'm glad that we're beyond that now in a sense that organizations that were focused on hiv and aids uh now feel that they can go and help deal with more general Healthcare uh, organizations become uh, change the names of things like Prism Health, uh, which is a great organization. I, I, I don't, I don't want to knock them at all, but they, they, we are now at a point where hopefully, if this vaccine or this cure comes to us, it, 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 it's long in coming. Too many good people are 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 are, are have gone have passed and we've lost so much in our community
0: as an LGBT community because of that disease. Ray, I wanna thank you for all the work that you've done and for fighting for our communities for so long, for so many decades. I really deeply appreciate your friendship and your mentorship and I look forward for many more years of friendship and activism from you. Gracias, thank you.